in May of 2019, our co-host, Andrew Kleiman, headed down to George Mason University to speak on a panel he was invited to. Uh, well, Andrew was invited to be on a panel put on by the, their SDS chapter at George Mason University. That's Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which hosts our podcast. And if you recognize her voice, that's because her voice is the one that reads MHI's Who We Are statement on every episode of Radio Free Humanity. So uh, on the panel were uh, Andrew Kleiman, Rick Wolf, Boots Riley, who's a um, uh, hip-hop artist and filmmaker, recently made a film against capitalism, and a graduate student um, who was just a through-and-through Stalinist, who's uh, part of the P- uh, PSL group that is very Stalinistic. The, and that's Party for Socialism and Liberation, correct? Right. They say they're for it. They're really against both of them. (laughs) Exactly. And we will get to that. Today, we bring you the story of our co-host, Andrew Kleiman's journey last May of 2019 to George Mason University, where he found himself in a room full of Stalinist tankies. Andrew and I will be interviewing Andrew Clard, who was there at the panel and who has written a lot since about the resurgence of Stalinism and young people today. And of course, today's conversation is accompanied by an all-horror music soundtrack. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also leave a donation there at the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the positions and views of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Hey, if you're searching for a podcast on some kind of podcast app, your best bet is to type in the full title of the podcast. That's Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. You can also stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org and pick up the RSS feed and feed that into whatever app you use. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Anja Clard about tankies. But first, as we always do, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events and recent news. Last Thursday, the U.S. military assassinated Iran's military chief and second most powerful leader, General Qasem Soleimani, near Baghdad Airport in Iraq. It was carrying out the explicit, personally issued order of President Donald J. Trump. Those are the opening lines of an editorial published on January 6th on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org's uh, publication with Sober Senses. The editorial is called Stop Trump's Self-Interested Drive to War Against Iran and Against the American People. And the editorial is the subject of our current events section today that Andrew and I will be discussing. The editorial goes on to say, This dramatic and frightening act of escalation of hostilities was not an inevitable result of some logic of imperialism, nor was it an inevitable result of the drive toward war with Iran that hawks in the U.S. national security establishment have long fomented. So, Andrew, this idea that this uh, escalation of tensions with Iran is the result of uh, U.S. imperialism and or part of this inevitable uh, unstoppable drive toward war is a narrative we hear in a little bit of the anti-war left. So 
why is that narrative uh, called into question by this MHI editorial? You know, what's wrong with that narrative? Right. I had a hand in in, in writing um, this this editorial of ours, um, and we think that um, we think the evidence is pretty clear that this was Trump's doing, and that Trump has his own personal motives for the escalation uh, against Iran and against the regime in, in Iran. Uh, and in fact, the editorial highlights this by saying stop Trump's self-interested drive to war with Iran. And so the, the idea is this is not something that comes from the inevitable you know, logic, so to speak, of imperialism, nor is it really part and parcel of you know, the hawks, the neocons, drive to war with Iran, um, you know, spanning over decades now. Uh, it has to do with the threats that Donald Trump faces from the the impeachment, uh, the, the you know trial in the Senate, uh, all of the investigations, and what he's doing is protecting his own liberty and his own property by trying to stay in office come what may, because the moment he leaves office, he's subject to prosecution. His companies are, are, are in danger. And what Trump cares about more than anything is his, himself, you know, and, and, and his wealth. Uh, and he has the power to basically, um, you know, make policy and kill people, etc. And he doesn't care about that. And he's, he's doing it for himself, his own interests. We know from the New York Times that it was it was told by uh, senior uh, people in the Department of Defense and people in Trump's administration that when this decision to assassinate Soleimani was you know on on the table there and they were discussing it with Trump, the officials were flabbergasted. That's the term used in the New York Times. They were flabbergasted when Trump chose to assassinate Soleimani. It was the most extreme action they put on the list of possibilities, and they put it there to, you know, get him to look, you know, you don't want to go for the that extreme, you don't want to go for that extreme, try something in the middle, and he chose the most extreme. They had advised him against it, and they were like, oh my God, now what's going to happen? According to the New York Times, uh, they were, quote, immediately alarmed about the prospect of Iranian retaliatory strikes on American troops uh, in the region. So explain to me how this is part and parcel either of the, the logic of imperialism such that, you know, it, it's just the inevitable result of that or, or of, you know, the neocon and Pentagon uh, desire, so to speak, for war with Iran. It, 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 it doesn't make much, much sense. Yeah, I agree that it doesn't make much sense, especially since, you know, as we know, uh, it, you know, of course, it is a fact that the U.S. government has a whole national security apparatus devoted to researching and making policy around the strategic interests of the U.S. and U.S. capital, and that there are often sort of imperialist motives behind some of uh, some of that, but that Donald Trump doesn't listen to briefings. He uh, is not interested in other people's opinions. He shoots from the hip and acts very impulsively based usually on instinct and his immediate short-term interest of controlling the news cycle. And it, that's different than past presidents. I think there's this instinct in the anti-war movement to label this the same way we label all other U.S. policy historically in the Middle East as imperialist. 
This is very hard for a lot of people to, to come to grips with when you've got something different, uh, especially when people are writing statements uh, about like an emergency situation like, like we had and I think still have with the escalation with Iran, it's hard for people to kind of like shift gears. Uh, they're much more inclined to repeat what they regard as truisms. You know, there's another issue here, though, which is the um, desire and tendency of the left to normalize Trumpism, the terrible reluctance to recognize that there's an extraordinary danger here, that this is not, you know, capitalist imperialist business as usual going on. Uh, and we've seen that again and again, and I think the the, the ascribing uh, the, the escalation to some logic of imperialism or to you know the neocons and stuff it's part and parcel of that same normalization of Trumpism, and I think that's very dangerous. So why does the editorial that MHI put out and that you helped uh, write why does it take issue with this idea that this escalation with Iran is part of an unstoppable process. Right. So the point isn't just here is the actual reason for the drive to war. Trump's trying to protect his liberty and his property. I mean, okay, that's a factual question. But it's not just academic because, okay, why does that matter? Well, one reason it matters is when we see that the drive to war is specific to Trump. You know, it doesn't flow from a logic of imperialism as such, whatever that might mean. It isn't just an inevitable consequence of, of decades of the neocons and the hawks fomenting a war with Iran. Once we see that it's specific to Trump, it gives us more hope that it can be turned around. And that's the real thing that we have to do here is to stop this drive to war. And it's much easier to stop if it is, you know, being driven by the motives of one single individual and there's no inevitability to that drive to war. Okay, so so, so the positions that we are uh, criticizing are not only factually incorrect, they're demoralizing, okay? And that's the last thing you want when you're trying to fight an impending war is to be demoralized from the start. You know, MHI's editorial is not the first one to make the wagging the dog reference uh, in explicating Trump's motivations for escalating things with Iran, but uh, it, the editorial does go farther than a lot of people and, and, and talking about those reasons, I mean, this is not just about winning re-election or even um, taking the focus away from impeachment. This is about even more uh, objective sort of existential problems for Trump. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason we focused so much on this is not just about him trying to win re-election or, you know, distract, but he is trying to protect his liberty and his property, you know, from prosecutions. The reason we stress this is it's a much more dangerous situation we face. His drive to war is much more objectively rooted. I mean, you could imagine that even Donald Trump would say, okay, you know, I am not going to plunge the world, you know, into total chaos just for the purpose of being reelected because I happen to want to be president. But we face a much tougher self-interest on his part, a much 
a much more objective compulsion on his part to drive us to war and to, and to disaster because if he does not remain in office, then his liberty and his property are under very serious threat. And that is the ultimate thing that those are the ultimate things that Trump cares about. So I think it is unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable that if he needs to, to protect his life and liberty, you know, and property, if he needs to plunge the world into war, you know, even catastrophic war, I can I cannot imagine that he would not take that step. I think it is inevitable that he will take the step if he has that opportunity, which is why the editorial then concludes what we have to do is get him removed from office by any means possible. You know, that is the the, the best way and maybe the only way we we have to stop this drive to war. Because if, if as long as he has power, as long as he has power, this drive to war is is, is just pushing, pushing, pushing uh, forward. Well, that's all the time we have for our current events section in this episode. Up next, we return to our conversation with Andrew Clard about tankies. So when you got to the room, were you expecting to be in a room full of tankies? <laughs> Andrew was suspicious, I think. He can speak for himself. But the way they sent him questions in advance, and the questions were kind of peculiar uh, I had no idea what to expect because it never crossed my mind that young people were Stalinists. I just had missed this whole phenomenon, which has been going on apparently for a few years, uh, of youth um, being dominated in their discourse of the left by this Stalinism. Okay, so if you weren't expecting it, at what point during the panel did you realize there were so many tankies in the room? Oh, it was it was throughout. Certainly, the presentation by by the graduate student was uh, hair raising. And Boots Briley, who's a Maoist, his presentation was pretty hair raising. So it became apparent early on. But uh, what was particularly shocking to me was that the audience was sympathetic to them. And when they had discussion after the presentations, questions from the audience, um, they were also rooted in the most kind of vulgar uh, Stalinism of old, uh, denying that there had been any any famines or massacres or shootings or anything like that. It was all a CIA myth, a, a big lie. They talked about the invasion of um, Hungary and Czechoslovakia being good things. The Russians were just trying to get them, you know, to stay in the socialist fold when they were being lured by the, the CIA. And it's incredible nonsense that I had no idea uh, was still out there in the world or out there other than an antiquated, ridiculous literature from decades ago. So it sounds like this is... This isn't just Stalinism in the sense of like, oh, we're for central planning and the dictatorship of the proletariat. And yes, uh, the Soviet Union had some problems, but we'll fix them in the future with the right technocratic solutions or more democratic solutions. This is like Stalinism in the sense of um, naked sort of post-truth apologetics saying, you know, there's, there was nothing wrong with the Soviet Union and all the bad things you hear about the Soviet Union and Stalinism are just lies created by the CIA and Western propaganda, right? 
Exactly. And uh, I was expecting at worst the kind of soft Stalinism you mentioned first, although it's not uh, soft, but... You know, um, I'm an old person, and all my life I've had to deal with people who were what we call Stalinist, were the capital a uh, small s, uh, and that they were very sympathetic to the Soviet Union and did think it could be reformed and thought that uh, it would be reformed, and they just needed a little more than 70 years to get their act together, but it was still socialism at, at its base. And I'm used to arguing with those people all my life. Uh, but even when I was young, uh, in the 60s, uh, nobody was taken seriously if they argued that Stalin was a good guy and everything he was doing was good for the people, because that was just too ridiculous. We, we knew it wasn't true, and we thought only, you know, very old people who remembered the Russian Revolution um, would have such a line and cling to the idea that it was revolutionary in spite of all the facts. So you can imagine my surprise when 50 years later, uh, this is not only still around, but is comes much stronger than it, it was in my youth. It sounds very much like the sort of vulgar, anti-truth, anti-historical arguments you hear from Holocaust deniers. Yeah, I mean, most of that was coming either from that graduate student or from the specific members of the audience. Um, I mean, my my take on it is that uh, Boots Riley and Rick Wolf were running the, oh, they had problems line, you know, where the problems were never, of course, specified, nor was it ever said who w- represented the problem, the ruling class in these societies or the masses, you know, fighting them. They were just, oh, well, they're not perfect. You know, we're, 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 we're not totally out of it. We're not being total denialists and say these are, these are perfect societies, you know, but, but, you know, they weren't perfect, but, you know, let's, let's, let's attack uh, capitalism. So, it, so it, it was not like one unified line as, as, as I see it coming out of, uh, you know, all of them. But when the graduate student on the panel started spouting all this crazy post-truth Stalinist stuff about how the Hungarian uprising was all just a bunch of CIA officers and Nazis. Did Boots Riley and Rick Wolf challenge him on that? Or were they just kind of happy to have that be part of their general, you know, presentation, be part of their their general leftism? They seemed content. They didn't uh, interrupt him to say anything. Boots Riley interrupted everybody constantly and hogged all the time. Uh, So whereas Andrew was kept to his time allotments to answer questions and things, Riley just talked constantly, but he didn't have much to say. Uh, And uh, nobody said to the guy, you know, this is nonsense until um, until later in the program when we we did. But it was it was really pitiful and shocking uh, because I didn't know that this is common now. Now I know it's common. So this was a surprise to you at the George Mason University panel. But since then, you've done some writing and research about this phenomenon of uh, resurgent Stalinism or tankyism, especially amongst uh, young people today. 
And we'll link to uh, your left forum talk from 2019 about this topic. How did you start to piece together that this was uh, something that extended beyond your experience at George Mason, but was actually like a growing uh, problematic phenomenon? Well, I don't know if it's growing or, but I, but it's it's certainly grown. Uh, maybe with luck, it'll be shrinking. I am uh, organizational secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Uh, so I'm the uh, first person who contacts new people who write in to us or subscribe to our notices and letters and things. Uh, and lately we've gotten quite a few young people, I'd say particularly in the last year and a half. I mean very young people, high school and, uh, and early 20s. And uh, I began talking with them and turned out that most of them had a very similar story of their political evolution. And it began when they were 15, something like that in high school. And they didn't know anything uh, except that they hate this world and they wanted to find out uh, what socialism was because they'd heard about socialism. For many of them, it came through uh, Bernie Sanders and the DSA. They heard the word socialism. So they went to look for socialism. And where they went to look, of course, was the internet and uh, particularly uh, internet speakers and writers who their friends referred to them, uh, referred them to. So they went on the internet and they found these uh, hardline Stalinists who had these fantastic stories. And the youth, not knowing very much history, said, oh my heavens, you know, I believe this because I know that our teachers and parents and everybody lies to us and our government. So here's an alternative universe that uh, got some historians claiming to be experts who know something better. And it's a whole different picture of history and what happened in the Soviet Union and also to some extent in China and other places. Um, so they read this stuff and they believed it and uh, uh, four or five people at least have told me neither, either uh, told me virtually identical stories about how they believed this stuff for some years and even argued and even joined PSL or joined some other group. For years, now they're so young that their years is not a lot of years, but like some of them uh, got involved with it at age 15 and were staunch participants in it for five years. And only when they hit 20 or so, they began to realize that that wasn't the truth, that it was all a bunch of baloney, and they began to look around for alternatives to that. Um, and that's how these youth found Marxist humanism, because they were had gone through this Stalinism and were now looking for a real alternative to it and to existing society. Do you have any sense of why they started to question this tankyism and look for alternatives? Oh, I guess they studied a little more about the world and, and realized that was nonsense. They were looking around for other things. They were found other friends 
besides those initial friends who said, oh, you have to go on there and listen to uh, to Fur and listen to this uh, Finnish Bolshevik is a big name on that. And th- these people just do- literally dominate YouTube. That's what you get when you start looking for socialism. And that's all they knew what, how to do at first. I guess they started to hear it wasn't true. And so they looked around. It almost sounds like you're fielding emails from like cult survivors. Um, what what are these people saying to you when they write you emails? They write in and they say, "Well, I'm a Marxist humanist," and and I, you know, was so surprised at first. I said, "My heavens, you know, <laughs> they haven't even contacted us before, and yet they share our philosophy." But they didn't necessarily mean our specific Marxist humanism. They meant some generic. Uh, form that the internet has uh, homogenized us and other thinkers uh, into, but they knew, at least they knew, there was a difference between Marxism and Stalinism, and there was a difference between humanism and Stalinism, so they wanted to explore it further, so they did start watching our stuff once they found us. And the other side is aware of us. Uh, the other side knows us. I, I, I can't remember whether it was one of these youth or somebody else. But, you know, they were connected with one of these Stalinist groups and said stay away from the writings of climate. I was told that. I'll quote from, from Larry who's written a draft of an article for us. I don't know if it'll ever get done, but... He's just one of the young people that Yeah, this is a a very young person. Right. He says that the the reason that the Stalinists dominate YouTube and Reddit is because social media in general uh, is their domain, and Stalinism has a certain appeal to the young, and we can talk about that if you want. But basically, they uh, had had, uh, thought before they found, quote, socialism, the Stalinist kind, that there is no alternative that famous line that's dominated the political culture for several decades. So they were so happy to find anything that called itself anti-capitalist socialist. And then um, they began to see what wasn't true about it. Some of them read Kleiman, or they read Donayevskaya, and they compared what they saw there, and they saw the explanations of uh, Russia as a state capitalist society, not as a socialist society. So as they started to learn a little bit about actual Marxism, and they could for themselves see that uh, statified property and totalitarianism are not the essence of Marxism or socialism at all, and it's something very different, and they became more sophisticated. This guy, Larry, he said he saw that Trotsky had turned state property into a fetish, and, um, Donevskaya was the only one who saw through this and that most of socialism today appears to be red capitalism and uh, wasn't in fact breaking with the categories of capitalism the the hallmarks of capitalism was not attacking value production or capital or wage labor and the other categories of capitalism that have to be transcended so as they got more learned and more sophisticated, they saw that that was not socialism. But, you know, uh, Hegelian Marxists like us uh, always talk about the second negation. You have to 
get beyond first negation, which is just what you're opposed to, and you have to see the second negation coming to the fore, which is, you know, what you're for and what you might create. So it seems that a lot of people have to go through this a first negation of rejecting the society wholeheartedly uh, and whatever they find then they embrace temporarily and it takes them a while to get to second negation. So Larry, uh, that, was, that was me, but going back to Larry, he talks about um, also uh, anarchism, that a lot of these youth turn to anarchism when they left Stalinism. Uh, but he thinks anarchism is less popular than what they call Marxist humanism uh, because it lacks history, it lacks a, a perspective on the future, and <clears throat> other than, you know, description of a different society. and <clears throat> doesn't have a revolutionary philosophy of how to get there. So, so that's why he came to us. But as I say, I heard nearly the identical, nearly word for word uh, descriptions of the development by a lot of young people. That's very interesting. What do you think is attractive about this neo-Stalinism to these young people? Well, some of them are just rebelling against what they know and what they've grown up with. That's not enough of an explanation, because one reason I was so shocked uh, when when I was at George Mason, because I didn't know this phenomenon was out there, but also because it seemed to make no sense. If you want to rebel against uh, the world you know, you could go to uh, to radical Islam or to uh, following um, Iran's government or something. You know, you pick something very unpopular and, and cling to it. But why they would pick... Uh, uh, long over with and discredited political theory I had I had no idea and particularly because Stalinism didn't succeed in the end you know when I was young there were plenty of Stalinists around but that's because that was quote actually existing socialism but after it fell what's the big attraction so it might might be in part that that's all they found on the internet which really says a lot about this very scary power of the internet so it's both I think the natural rebellious of youth and the, the fact that that's all they could find and the they were too young to know much history or philosophy to be able to evaluate it at the time. But there's also some uh, possibility and, and thought that this is attractive to people. Uh, attractive to people who bought the whole Trump view that uh, truth is bendable, there's your truth, there's my truth, why not have a totally alternative reality? And there are people who are attracted by authoritarianism, which goes hand in hand with creating your own reality, right? And that some people admire the strength or whatever of Stalin, just like some do of Trump, so they uh, were happy to get into this alternative world. There's also this idea of a mythic past, which some of these writers talk about. Jason Stanley, an uh, expert on fascism's book on how fascism, fascism works, is this often a mythic 
past they're harking back to. Um, so, you know, one immediately thinks of Trump trying to create a, a world in which uh, white uh, men were dominant over everything and had this lovely time because there weren't any blacks or women interfering with them. But uh, why young people should be interested in a mythic time, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's because they watch too much, you know, video games and movies about uh, wonderful mythical societies. It, it, it seems a little weird to me. Uh, I would more likely go with the explanation that that's just, that's all they found at first, and they had to go through that to get to the other side of something intelligent. But what's really scary is this idea that it has to do with uh, people liking authoritarianism or liking power and what it can do for them. So uh, let me just mention um, this website. Where's his name? There's a website with an article by someone who was uh, criticizing and breaking with these tankies and got terribly attacked uh, by other people and not just attacked. on the internet but people were were messing up his website and threatening him physically and stuff here his name is solar punk anarchist it's one word solar punk anarchist wrote a long article about his personal experiences and he suggests that normally you think that advocating for violence and killing people and everything would be abhorrent but it's only abhorrent if you're the one being oppressed suppressed killed etc right if you're the one with the power who is doing this to other people who you don't like it may be very attractive because you were able to do away with your enemies so that's a, a, a really scary thought too but it may be part of the attraction because it's the internet you're go- and because people their first exposure to Stalinism is this stuff you're going to get a lot of people who are of this type that they like to dominate they like to boldly uh, that they are authoritarian because those are the kinds of people who predominate on the net in general. You know, so those those who predominate on the internet left are going to be the same kinds of people, you know, who troll, who bully, who intimidate. So there might be different uh, motivations of other people, but this is going to come to the fore and and, and be predominant because that's just what is predominant on, on the internet generally. You know, we've been using the word tanky, but for those listeners who aren't familiar with the term, Anne, can you explain what that refers to? Um, It just refers to uh, Stalinist left people. It comes from the fact that uh, the Soviet Union sent in tanks and crushed the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 and the Czech Revolution in 1968. And so it's the worst kind of association you could give to the Soviet Union to say, oh, we're all for sending in the tanks and mowing down and shooting down the masses in the street. And this came out actually at George Mason um, when um, maybe Andrew wants to talk about it. But he he started to talk about the Hungarian Revolution as an example of a great revolution. And the people in some people in the audience got very incensed and said, "Oh." 
Yeah, they, they, they said what you're like shining, shining examples of uh, anti-imperialist struggle, right? That was one of the questions I received a week in advance, and I knew something was, was up with questions. Uh, that was one of the questions that uh, caught my attention. So I wasn't going to back down, you know. So I, I it, it's not that it's untrue. It, it is a shining example of, uh, you know, uh, tremendous struggle against the Stalinist imperialism, you know, Stalinist Russia. But um, it's not what they meant by the question. But I didn't realize it's it's not a, a brand new expression or anything. It comes from apparently from um, the British left, and in the British left, there is a much more tolerance than we norm, than, than we see in the U.S. For I mean, the established the much more tolerance there for people who hark back to the Soviet Union as great. In fact, all kinds of sections of the Labor Party are still uh, tied to that concept of socialism, uh, whereas in the U.S. you don't hear that, uh, at least not in public, that that was a great thing. So apparently those people have been called tankies in the U.K. for some time. So, Andrew, I want to ask a question uh, to follow up on something you said earlier. You said that you received the questions that were going to be asked at this panel ahead of time and that when you read the questions, you got suspicious that perhaps you were walking into a room full of neo-Stalinists. So I'm curious about what the clues were in the questions. Like, I'm assuming they weren't asking questions like, uh, was Stalin a great guy, right? No, right. no, nothing, so, nothing, no, was, no, nothing, nothing. It was like a little that. more subtle than that, right? So, what were you? I'm curious to what your clues were. You know how your bat sense picked up on this. It might be useful to our listeners so they could develop their own the tanky radar. I, I think you have to be prepared all the time for everything. Uh, when I saw the questions ahead of time, I thought they were odd, but I didn't um, identify them politically. Yeah, I your just thought alarm they were, bells didn't go off in uh, your head. No, because I <clears throat> thought it was a mishmash <clears throat> of students had put together who, you know, weren't clear on what they wanted out of the panel, and it was a little this and a little of that. But um, Andrew discerned a little more. I was sent a list of seven questions in advance. Here are the ones that tipped me off. Quote, Western superpowers such as the U.S. and the U.K. launched extensive anti-socialism propaganda campaigns throughout the 20th century in order to condemn the left as inhumane and the ultimate threat to, quote, freedom, close quote. How do you respond to these attacks on the morality of socialism? How would you deconstruct the capitalist myth of the free market? And why do you feel that a planned economy is more effective? <laughs> okay. All right, like that is kind of a giveaway. Thrown in there, <laughs> uh, and and then and, and that, that's all one question. Although it's like seven questions. There. Okay, so the the next question that tipped me off. Uh, quote: What is the role of student movements in the growth, support, and fight for a socialist future? What is a liberation struggle that isn't necessarily a student movement that inspires you, uh, and you think provides an important example? for resisting colonialism and imperialism. Okay, so why is that a tip-off that there's some tankyism involved? 
it's a tip-off that it's third-worldist uh, and, quote, anti-imperialist, you know, that anti-West, uh, anti-imperialism. Can I prove it? Only in retrospect. <laughs> but, but, you know, my antenna went up. So, you know, it's not hard to, to take an educated guess and say, oh, God, look what I'm walking into. Well, a wall of a wall of Russian tanks here, you know? No, I, I, you know, it sounds funny, but, but really, like, Stalin started off, when he started off, he wasn't Stalin. You know, he became Stalin, you know? And, and, and all of these people, they, they represent a tremendous threat, even though they don't have power right now. Um, so it's not just us disagreeing with people. We're, 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 we've got people who would imprison and shoot and, and do everything to us. That, that's, we're, that's what we're dealing with. All right. I, um, uh, you asked um, earlier, Brendan, about what's the attraction of tankyism. And some of the youth I've talked to and my experience with non-youth would indicate that it's the anti-war, anti-imperialism mentality that dominates the left and dominates the youth. After all, some of these youth have their whole lives been fighting against the war in Iraq and the other U.S. wars in the Middle East and those aided and abetted uh, by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And so they consider their anti-war, anti-imperialist positions to be the, the root and heart of their leftism. Maybe that's all they know of leftism. So when you're an anti-imperialist, then there's a tendency for these youth, again, if they're only seeing simplistic explanations, just to be anti-U.S., right? No, even though there are plenty of other imperialists around these days who are invading and colonizing the world. They take it well, the U.S. is the worst and the U.S. is the source of all the world's problems and the U.S. is uh, the most uh, advanced capitalist so it's driving everything. So they go from being anti-imperialism to anti-U.S. and uh, then it's a quick step to uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend and they'll befriend anyone who's opposing the U.S. And, and this is because of very, very limited thinking, right? That you have to choose among existing oppressive governments. Uh, you can't think outside the box and think about wholesale human liberation. So I'm sure that's true. Hence, groups like uh, the Workers' World Party and the Party for Socialism and Liberation have been known to defend and spread all sorts of ridiculous post-truth apologetics about all sorts of horrible uh, dictators and regimes all over the world from uh, apologizing for uh, Assad in Syria to defending Saddam Hussein. The Workers' World and the, the PSL is an offshoot of that, but before there was the split, Workers' World was the only group on the left that outright supported the Tiananmen massacre. Uh, and, and I'm sure they still do, as people do. Right now, I'm following what's going on in Hong, Hong Kong, and the uh, U.S. Maoist groups are condemning that and saying, you know, even though it's the whole population that it's all CIA agents and all uh, just paid uh, agitators and all that, because the Chinese government can do no wrong. But I remember way back when uh, the Shining Path movement in Peru, when they 
they were Maoist group and they were slaughtering the peasants and they were being defended. I remember once having a, by chance, having a uh, literature table put next to theirs, to Worker's World, and I had uh, literature ab about Peru and the opposite of Shining Path. And uh, I was afraid, frankly. I was afraid they would attack me. I was afraid to get up uh, and leave the table for a moment uh, if I didn't have a comrade to take it over because um, I thought they would at least destroy my literature uh, and maybe assault me. <clears throat> But that's been for years and years, you know, because that was back in the in the 70s, 80s, 90s. There's a lot of authoritarianism among people who say that they're on the left. You know, this is this is the problem I, I, I think we face is that we have the sense of, you know, we all mean well, we're all really for the same things, and that we can then intervene, you know, to convince people who are like us that our ideas are better because we're really on the same side. And I'm, I'm not at all convinced that that's the case. And I would like to ask a question going back to the stuff that Anne was saying about uh, these young people believing, you know, that uh, Stalin did not uh, commit crimes humanity, that there was no uh, famine, and all, all the rest. So, to, to my mind, we face this throughout society now in a big way with post-truth and, and the, the Trump's base, and we hear all these things about what they believe, and I, I, I'm very skeptical, because what they believe just sounds really, really weird, conspiracy theories, and you believe Trump when it's obvious Trump just lies all the time, right? So are these people totally out out of touch such that they actually believe what Trump is saying, okay? I think we have to make a distinction. When, when philosophers talk about belief, they, 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 they mean belief that something is factually accurate. So I'd like to, to make a distinction between belief that something is the case versus belief in, you know? I, so I, I think in, in the main, it's not that Trump's base doesn't see that he's a liar. It's not that they believe that the words coming out of his mouth are factually accurate, but they believe in him the way people believe in God. So my, my question is, do these people believe, you know, these Stalinist myths as factual accuracies, or do they believe in Stalinism? And it might sound like an, an, an abstract question, but it goes directly, as I see it, to how we engage with this. If these are people who actually believe that this is the case and that is the case, we should be able to convince them otherwise just by talking to them, exposing them to the facts, uh, and it'll, it'll all work out. If they believe in this stuff, we're dealing with people who are very unlike us and we, we, we can't use fact-based methods of engagement to deal with this problem that we face wherein the, the left is being perverted and turned into its opposite. You know, it, 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 it's fascist authoritarianism, basically. Um, so it's a long question because I had to sort of lay out a, a bunch of things, but um, I I'd like to know what, what Anne thinks and I'd like to know what you think, Brendan. Well, I'm, I can't say for sure. My impression is that they actually believe those are all lies made up by Western historians who are in some kind of conspiracy to suppress the truth of what went on there and um, voiced by the CIA or NSA or whoever is the is the government uh, uh, main uh, actor today. But that, yes, they believe it. They're not saying it, it was okay to kill millions of people in the furtherance 
of the Soviet Union. They're saying those people were not killed. Maybe a few were killed, a couple were killed, collateral damage, but it, nothing like the huge, huge atrocities that actually went down. So the, the implication should be that by exposing these people to facts, we can change their minds. I don't know, but I know that's what the youth have described to me, that it was when they began to question. They saw things that they knew couldn't be true or weren't true. They began to read Marx and they saw that it had nothing to do with what um, the Stalinists were saying it was all about. That then, you know, once they stopped believing totally, then they started thinking for themselves and they found more and more cracks and then they rejected the whole thing. And, you know, I suspect that it's not just being confronted with a certain critical mass of facts that might make one break with a tanky belief system, but also being presented with an alternative uh, way of thinking, an alternative like worked out uh, way of still being a leftist or, you know, anti-capitalist or anti-war that is, uh, you know, a non-tanky alternative. You know, I'm envisioning someone who maybe starts going to anti-war demos, uh, starts waving around like uh, answer coalition signs and stickers because they passed them out for free at protests. Maybe they don't realize that they're a front group and then they get a flyer for some like answer coalition thing that's uh, an, an Assad apologist lecture and then before long, they're like, uh, you know, selling Workers' World papers or something because it seems like a natural, inevitable part of like their uh, development as an anti-war, anti-capitalist person because they don't see there's an alternative way of being anti-war and anti-capitalist because that's just what they're, you know, immediately presented with as, as like the natural evolution of those sort of political leanings. So I suspect it's not just, you know, a... Uh, uh, you know, reading a history book or something that uh, in which they're confronted with the horrors of Stalinism, but also, you know, having a worked out way of um, of exercising their legitimate frustration at uh, our capitalist and and imperialist world that uh, doesn't lead right back into Stalinism. I think that's true, and I didn't really answer adequately before when you tried to give me an opening to talk about what's Marxist humanism's appeal. Um, the youth I've been in discussion with are very intelligent, and they go out and explore things um, once they have the idea in their heads that everything they've been taught about the left uh, was wrong and about the Soviet Union was wrong. So they're still on the internet, however, because that's the only only source of knowledge they know. <clears throat> I'm talking about, you know, when the 15-year-olds turn 18 and they, they start to find out a little more. So they look around on the internet and there's something called Marxist humanism and there's a lot called anarchism. And so they, they think they had to pick between those three things, the Stalinism, Marxist humanism, if, if they even see anything called Marxist humanism. Um, there hasn't been for a long time. There's absolutely nothing. Uh, or anarchism. Anarchism. So if they're studying any Marx, they can clearly see who is talking about what Marx was talking about, his categories of what makes up capitalism, his view of what the opposite to capitalism is, um, and then they would come to us. So it has to do with not just telling people oh, 
read our website, we have such good stuff and such good positions on things. It has to do with them really getting inside the internal logic of a group that's for human liberation and human development uh, through human activity and human thought. And that's very abstract, but once they can grasp some of what we mean by that and what we're all about, then it's very attractive, I think, and very attractive to a lot of people, unless you have absolutely committed yourself to authoritarianism and lies. So, Anne, earlier on, we distinguished between, say, this like hard Stalinism, which is like nakedly apologetic and, and anti-truth, and, say, some kind of soft Stalinism, in which uh, one might acknowledge that there were shortcomings with uh, Stalinism and the Soviet Union, but still say, okay, this was, you know, uh, our one historical example of like a real socialist society. And so this is something we need to improve on and build upon and not reject. You know, how do you, how does Marxist humanism, and how would you respond to that sort of soft oh, well, that's, Stalinism? That's a very old line also, the, the gradualist idea that uh, uh, they're working on perfecting socialism in the Soviet Union. I always make fun of it, you know, because they had 70 years and they didn't get beyond the, oh, we're working on it. I don't know if you remember, but um, right before the fall of the, the Soviet Union, people were saying, Gorbachev's going to going to make everything better and he's going to introduce democracy so we're going to still have the same factory system of exploitation of labor but now there's going to be factory committees which they were supposed to be at the, they were at the start of the revolution they lost all their power but they say well now we're going to uh, mix in democracy and that's going to make all the difference that this was the cp line and all their um, similar organizations line and it just has no basis in fact and again you have to uh, read a little Marx and see that you can't be a little bit capitalist and a little bit uncapitalist that you either have production working under the laws of capitalism uh, and which of course is the um, getting the maximum labor out of the workers and paying them the minimum and unless that's the hallmark um, while that's the hallmark you still have capitalism uh, so this gradual notion, I think, is just a fiction. That's not how change happens. Change happens when you overthrow the current society and completely tear it up, root and branch, and start something totally new. New human relations, new work relations, new man-women relations, new everything. And it doesn't happen overnight, and it's not easy, and there's no automatic road from overthrowing the old system and being able to create a new system. Uh, but that's why we talk all the time about the self-development of movements, not of people in particular, but of movements. The uh, revolutionary movements need to become smart and learned enough to be able to take control of their own lives in their own hands and work out what that new society will look like. And to me, that's the answer when people say, oh, if you don't like Russia, you know, can you point to some other society that's good? If you can't point to it, then I'm not going to believe in it. And you 
have to get people to think outside of what the existing choices are. And this has to do with anti-war movement and the leftists and everybody. If they limit their thinking to what they can see in front of them, they're never going to break free of capitalism or this society in any way, shape, or form. So it's a very difficult project that we've taken on at MHI, but we don't think there's any other path uh, to socialism. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity. In just a moment, we will return with our interview about tankies. But as we do in every episode, we're going to take a couple minutes for Anne to tell us a little bit about Marxist Humanist Initiative. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. Well, again, if people want to watch the video of this panel, they can go to the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website and just search for George Mason, and you'll find the panel from May of 2019 uh, video of it. Um, I mean, for me, one of the most striking things about the panel was not just that there were all the students with these tankiest positions, but that the amongst the adults on the panel, uh, Andrew, you're, you're yourself, and then Boots Riley and Rick Wolf. Andrew, you're the only person who is uh, seen uh, responding critically at all to these Stalinist positions, and Boots Riley and Rick Wolf are pretty uh, uh, appallingly quiet or even encouraging of these positions. Boots Riley, yeah. Boots Riley is either a member of or very close to the Progressive Labor Party, which is unreconstructed Maoist. I mean, and he was basically, when whenever there was like some criticism of like the USSR or something, he'd go, oh, well, that was, you know, in the Khrushchev period. 
you know, in other words, Stalin is is, is all hunky dory. It's it's the revisionist post Stalin era that's got everything to blame. So I mean, he was putting out that kind of line. The the much scarier, much more insidious line is the so-called soft Stalinism. I think is actually worse than the upfront Stalinism. The upfront Stalinism, at least you know what they're about and what they aim for. Um, people like Rick Wolf. They, they remind me of like you know uh, the, the the responsible Republicans who you know don't say anything when Trump does his both sides about Charlotte uh, Charlottesville you know and the family separations and and the and the the genocide in, in Puerto Rico but they go we really wish he wouldn't tweet so much and th- that's that's Rick Wolf on the USSR well you know we, we really wish you know the Stalin hadn't tweeted so much you know they, they made mistakes you know you don't specify what the mistakes are. And all of a sudden, all these people who are supposedly, you know, thinking about class and have an understanding of class analysis and class struggle, when it comes to those societies, all of a sudden you get this undifferentiated we, we, they, these societies, you know. And and in, in, in Wolf's case, it's completely disingenuous because he co-authored with Stephen Resnick a, a, a book in, in, in 2002 that argued that the USSR was a state capitalist society. And that meant it had, it had a capitalist ruling class. It was not a socialist society. But he gets to this platform and he's playing to the, the tanky rafters and he's calling, you know, these things socialist societies and we're getting the old, you know, monthly review apologetics. They weren't perfect. But da, 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 da. Um, and um, it's, it, it's really... I, I, I found I, I found it despicable uh, because it's an attempt on the one hand not to criticize these societies so you get all the, the the tankies on your side and the anti-imperialists on your side but then you can't be tarred as one of them either uh, it's it's Weasley it's a very Weasley way of operating and and I, I think we, we we're dealing with a class struggle you know between capitalism in its private market form and its Stalinist you know state authoritarian totalitarian form. We're dealing with that against, you know, masses of people who want to be free, workers and, and, and so on. This is a class struggle. And the key is to any class struggle is which side are you on? And this is what they try to avoid. So I, I, I think it's I think this is much worse than the Boots Rileys and the Bennett Shoops, the graduate student, and, and all of those people, because um, it makes it look, well, just, just like the, the respectable Republicans are more insidious than the Trumpites. And, you know, Andrew, for me, one of the most striking things about the panel, and of course, people should go to the MHI website and watch it themselves and make their own uh, judgments, but for me, one of the most striking things was that not, not only did Rick Wolf not want to challenge any of the tanky positions that were being offered in the panel. But uh, when you, Andrew, offered some criticism, uh, Rick Wolf got upset and attacked you. Yeah, the exact uh, context is I, I made a distinction between the vision of liberatory socialism uh, and the systems that usurped the name post-totalitarian control and unfreedom. Uh, I said that the cause of socialism is going to suffer when these things are confused. And Wolf responded, quote, uh, the, the desire to have a debate over who's genuinely in the club and who's genuinely out of it, I think that's done more damage than almost anything else. This has to be denounced very, very loudly because there's no 
way to clarify thinking on what socialism is, what we're for, except by making these distinctions. And that has to be challenged at any left event. I mean, I have that problem all the time. Whatever we go to left forum, um, any other conference, historical materialism, any meeting, anti-war meeting or anti-Trump meeting, they always talk about we. We believe this. We have to defeat the Trumpets. But they never say who we is and what the differences among them are. And they always assume it's fine that, that we all get together. I mean, we act in coalitions to defeat Trump, but they act as if what we're for is all the same and that that's easy to know and that every leftist knows ABC. And it's just a total baloney. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to hear other episodes, to leave a comment, make a donation, or to read other articles about similar topics. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and lots of other platforms, so please do and share with friends. Thank you for listening. <laughs>